All right, Mark uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 25, uh, God's word says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it in verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. In verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. The final act of the gospel of Mark is at hand. If we separated Mark's gospel out into three sections, this is act three if you are watching it play. One third of this gospel is dedicated to the final week of Jesus's life, detailed in the next few chapters, 11 to 16. Uh, We'll spend from now until Easter in our church journeying through the finale of this book, the Passion Week as we have come uh, to know it, culminating in Mark's account of the resurrection on Easter Sunday in Mark chapter 16. 
Over the past year, we've studied this gospel. We started uh, next weekend, uh, would be one year marking traveling through Mark's gospel. Now, we've taken a couple stops along the way and done some other uh, sermon series, but just about a year in this gospel, unpacking uh, the truths of God's word as they pertain to the work of Christ. We've witnessed Jesus at work miraculously healing, teaching, and oftentimes, if you'll remember, telling those whom he had healed to what? To keep quiet, to remain silent about who he is. He, he would give them a command uh, to silence. He even, in his first miracle, when the demons came out, they were trying to cry out about who Jesus was, but Jesus said, shh, be quiet, be quiet. But here in this present passage, we see a radical shift in his ministry This is the moment that Jesus has been heading towards. The suffering servant on the road to Jerusalem. He's making the trek from Jericho where we were just a few weeks ago when we met Bartimaeus that Jesus healed of his blindness. Traveling from Jericho, he had, if you'll recall, many disciples in tow. He had a group following him. An unveiling is at hand. Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem. He will ascend to his throne in an upside-down manner. He won't take the throne of David with force, steaming in on a horse, subduing his enemies with power and might, but instead will conquer the great enemy of sin and death through humble obedience to the eternal plan of the Godhead. Humbly arriving at this final stretch of his earthly ministry, riding on a donkey. It brings us to our main idea for this passage. This is our main idea. Jesus is the king and the judge. Jesus is the king and the judge. It says in verses 7 to 10, focusing in on his kingship, and they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. These these were palm branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting this, Hosanna, which means Savior or save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, Savior, Messiah in the highest. Behold the sight here, church. The scene is Jesus' final approach to Jerusalem. He has not arrived at the city just yet. He's approaching it. Again, if you'll recall in in our last passage, many disciples were with him. So he has a a crowd following him. A part of that crowd is Bartimaeus, who has been healed of his blindness. It says in our last passage that he followed Jesus. They have climbed the the long, dusty road from Jericho, uh, the lowest-lying city in the world, heading to Jerusalem up on a hill some 3,000 feet over 18 miles. The first 11 verses of chapter 11 detail Jesus' arrival. His plan is perfect. He knew that that colt would be available. And the the foal's owners would, would allow his use of this donkey. The scene is not just happenstance. 
but God's perfect redemptive plan coming into view. It reminds me of when Peter says this in his epistle, 1 Peter 1.20, he says, he, that is Jesus that he's speaking of, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. God always knew that he would redeem a people for himself through the work of Christ. And in this present scene, his followers shout in acclamation, the command of silence is gone. The proverbial cat is out of the bag. The savior of the world has come. The king has arrived. Now the timing of this passage, it's Passover week. Hundreds of thousands of devout Jews make the pilgrimage into Jerusalem recalling, celebrating God's great deliverance from Egyptian slavery. The blood had saved them before. If you'll recall the story of of Israel's deliverance, they were under the hand of Pharaoh. They were an enslaved people. And and God's word says that that God heard their cry and he, he remembered his promise. And he delivered his people. And the last plague that he sent upon the Egyptians was one where he would take the firstborn. And he commanded Israel in that time to do something. What were they to do? To spread blood over the doorpost of their homes so that God would what? Would pass over. His wrath would not be poured out on them. They were saved under the blood. The blood had saved them before. God's wrath had passed over them. And now, hear this, now the better Passover lamb is in their midst. Jesus is the better Passover lamb because he is the Passover lamb for all of eternity, always covering our sins with his blood. The better Passover lamb is in their midst, seated on a donkey. And the crowds cry out, Hosanna, which means save us. Perhaps some understood what was awaiting Jesus. Remember to a few, he had predicted his death and resurrection three times. But many thought that at last, God had brought about the political leader who would deliver, who would finally deliver the Jews from the hands of the Romans. This wasn't the case. A different king had arrived. A different kind of king had arrived. A king who would deliver them from their true enemy, sin and death, all to his glory. The scene fulfills prophecy that was recorded some 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9.9. That's why we know that this passage is not just happenstance. God has always known that this is the way that it would work itself out. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he, hear these words, humble and mounted, what? On a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We know his coronation will occur in the coming days. The seeming dashing of hopes that will be evident when King Jesus is crowned. He won't be crowned in glory though. He'll be crowned with thorns digging into his head. 
We're also reminded that although his followers acclaim him with glory, blessing him with the cries, they're they're crying out Psalm 118. That's what the Hosanna passage is. In about a week's time, some of them will join the crowds in Jerusalem and they will scream out these words, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But he didn't arrive as king only. He also arrived as the judge. His arrival here reminds us of a second glorious arrival. Our great hope in the present time as followers of Christ is in the imminent return of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is coming back. And that Jesus will consummate his kingdom. He will bring it to completion and finality and perfection. He will banish evil and he will establish the new heavens and new earth. Church, this is good news. Man, am I alone in here or what? Come on now. And he also will judge every person on that day. We witness a picture of judgment in the living parable that we have before us. This actually happened. Jesus actually cursed this fig tree. And it's, it's a parable of judgment. A living parable. In this next section, we're presented with three scenes. And as is typical in Mark's gospel, the outer scenes, talking about the the fig tree, they sandwich a middle scene. We've called this all along a Mark sandwich, right? And so we have the cursing of the fig tree and then the teaching on the fig tree, but, but sandwiched in between those is Jesus cleansing, clearing the temple. Jesus curses the fig tree, explains it, sandwiches with his clearing of the temple. So let's look at this first scene now. Point number one, the fruitless fig tree. The fruitless fig tree. Verses 12 and 14, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. You see, the fig tree looks amazing. And Jesus is hungry. The fig tree looks like it should have fruit. It's leaved over. Now I want to be clear. I want to pause here for just a second. This isn't some moment of hangry irrationality in Jesus kind of reminiscent of a Snickers commercial, you know, where the old, do you guys remember the old Betty White Snickers commercial where they're, they're playing football? Go home and watch it. It's hilarious. I struggle with hanger issues at time. You guys tracking with me? You're hungry and it's like whoever's around you, they're just, they're getting the wrath. This is not the case here. This isn't some moment of irrationality. You don't need to conjure up some sort of sentimental feelings for the poor fig tree. This is the same Jesus who had just so happened to know exactly when to send two disciples to go retrieve an unridden donkey that he would ride into Jerusalem. Jesus is in complete control of this situation. And here's the good news. He's in complete control of every situation. There's nothing outside the realm of his sovereign plan. And he is out to teach a lesson here and display his divine power. 
Again, the, the amazing fig tree, we're, we're focused on that. It's leaved over, it's full, it's lush. But what good is a fruit tree if it does not feed you? It has no fruit. It looks like it should, but it, it doesn't. Mark notes that it is out of season. But again, the tree had all the signs of having what Jesus needed, and yet it did not meet his needs. It could not feed him. Imagine now the approach to Jerusalem. It's much like this, the allure of this fig tree. You see, the pilgrims would, would make their way towards the temple. Herod had been rebuilding this temple. He was the ruler of this area at the time. The temple now was, was this glorious structure. It was a sight to behold. As pilgrims approached the temple, remember hundreds of thousands of people would would flood this area at the Passover season. As pilgrims approached the temple, it would would gleam in the sunlight as as they looked upon it. Brilliant white and gold. Its beauty was blinding. It was attractive, drawing you in with the promises of of forgiveness, the promise of being a part of a special people who would exude these things, justice and mercy and peace, and yet what the visitors would find was a place of exclusion and malice and greed. The temple, much like the fig tree, had the allure of of beauty and life and fruit, but it was empty of true power. It wouldn't provide the nourishment that they need. And it brings us to our second point, the fruitless temple cult. The fruitless temple cult. And they came to Jerusalem, and he, meek, mild Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers. Get the scene here. There's people in there doing business and Jesus comes through. I can remember when I was in high school, I played football and I can remember it. We played a a half of football, the first half, and we absolutely stunk. We were terrible. We were getting our tails whipped. And I'll never forget, we went into the locker room to get a little pep talk from the coach, and we had a table set out with water on it, and he walked over to the table, and he gripped it underneath, and he ripped it to the sky and spilled water everywhere. Do you think we were terrified? We played a lot better in the second half. Jesus is here. He is overturned. He overturned tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. You see, the people were so irreverent in this time that they just used this as a thoroughfare to get through. It was the fastest route to get from one side to the other. They were irreverent to God's, God's temple and they just passed through. And Jesus is like, no more. You're not doing that anymore. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer. What? For all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they were seeking a way, it says, to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. 
The odds were stacked against those looking for hope. The pilgrims had made the long pilgrimage for the Passover celebration. They witnessed the gleaming glory of the temple in the distance. And when they arrived, they, they are met with the hustle and bustle of, of a market peddling religious goods and services. The religious leaders had quite a business. You see, the, the pilgrims would travel a, a long way and they had to, to bring a spotless sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice. How can I get that through these dusty roads to Jerusalem? And on top of it, the sacrifice had to be inspected at the temple. Who was it inspected by? The religious leaders. It probably wouldn't pass inspection by the very religious leaders who just so happened to have a suitable animal for sale for you right here in the temple courts. Notice also in this passage, Mark focuses on the foreigner and the poor in his description of Jesus' clearing of the temple. Okay, I'll show you how. Those who could not afford to purchase a, a lamb or bring a lamb were permitted to buy and sacrifice what? A pigeon. What did Jesus clear? The seats of those who what? Sold pigeons. Jesus drove out the pigeon sellers. They were charging exorbitant prices for such a sacrifice. The sacrifice meant for people that didn't have enough. I mean, think about this like when you go to a ball game. You go to a, a ball game. What's the poor man's food that you buy at a ball game? A hot dog, right? All the leftover stuff shoved into a tube, put into a bun. It's glorious, isn't it? Put a little mustard on that thing. You can't put ketchup on the hot dog. I'm sorry. Only mustard. It's the 11th commandment. How much do they charge you for this poor man's food at the ball game? Four or five bucks. For the mystery meat tube in a bun. It's the same thing here. The, the pigeons... Exorbitant prices for the poor people's sacrifice. Mark also notes the money changers. The religious leaders would not accept foreign money. So the sojourner, the, the foreigner, would have to exchange their money, which came with what? A little fee. So they paid a fee for their money to be exchanged, and they overpaid for the pigeon sacrifice. Do we see the problem here? The place of hope and mercy and forgiveness is a place of extortion and greed. The temple cult which operated the marketplace had a lucrative business. They were all getting fat and rich off of the religious pilgrims, the very ones that they were supposed to minister to. I'm so thankful that this doesn't happen anymore. The very ones that they had a priestly obligation to care for. The temple with its bright exterior promising hope and mercy and grace was filled with the depravity, the sinfulness of humanity within its courts and its walls. The poor paid a severe price for their sacrifice. Even the setup of the temple kept the foreigner at bay. 
There was layers of courts and and approaching the temple and, and the outermost layer was the court of what? The court of Gentiles. The Jewish woman was kept in the next layer and only the Jewish male was allowed beyond. The house of prayer, as Jesus called it, for the nations had become an exclusive club for the religious elite, as Jesus calls it what? A den of robbers, not a good scene. But the need for the temple was now null and void. Because the one Jesus whom this temple pointed to had arrived. Just as Jesus is the better Passover lamb, he is the better temple. A temple is a place, let me define it for you. A temple is a place where God's presence dwelt with his people. And here Jesus is among his people. The temple has arrived. And as we look through scripture, we see pictures of temple all over the place. We see back in, in the Garden of Eden that, that God was amongst his people. We see temple there with Adam and Eve. We see God dwelling on Mount Sinai as he spoke to Moses. We see temple there. We see God's temple in the tabernacle, the tent that would travel with the Israelites where God's presence dwelt. And then ultimately in the physical temple. But God's presence had long fled this temple. But now it arrives in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The temple is present. And looking ahead, this is good news. The temple will be poured out to all who will place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read in Acts chapter 2, it says that, that the Holy Spirit came through and filled them. God's dwelling is within us, church. Christian, you have God dwelling within you. That makes you a temple. You are now God's temple, filled with his presence, the Holy Spirit. And a temple must not show on the outside like like a fig tree with no fruit or a gleaming temple that was hopeless. We are not to be that. We're not to be fruitless. As God's temple, we are to bear fruit. We should be a place, Christian and church, a place of great spiritual fruit, which is marked by our third point this morning. The fruit of the kingdom is faith, prayer, and forgiveness. We find this in this last scene. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. 20 to 25, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. I love this. And Jesus answered them. And I don't know if Peter really asked a question there, but Jesus is going to answer him anyways. He says, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up, And thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 
Jesus uses an extreme example here, the mountain, right? The mountain being cast into the sea. You see, Jesus' followers are marked by something different. Something that that sets them apart from the temple cult that, that filled the temple grounds. The religious people doing business in the temple cults are, are a far cry from kingdom-minded followers of Christ. In the old temple, the nations are kept at bay, separated away. The women are, are held to another court. Only the Jewish male can advance to the innermost section of the temple. But God, hear this, this is good news, but God will destroy all those barriers Upon his death, the veil that separates the Holy of Holies, it'll be torn from top to bottom. Access to God for all. We, church, have been entrusted with this message. We are his kingdom-minded workers proclaiming this good news that, that the veil has been torn. It's the good news of the gospel. And this is because of the work that Christ will accomplish in the coming week that has already happened at the cross as we look back. The work will begin back to Peter and and the other disciples. The work will begin with those who are hearing the explanation of the fig tree. They will do the work through faith and prayer and forgiveness through the message of hope found only in the gospel. The gospel is our only hope. The mountain will be cast into the sea as both Jew and Gentile hear the good news of Jesus through the ministry of these very disciples who will become known as the apostles and through the establishment of the church We are the remnants of that, the lineage of their work. The church will be established, and every dark spiritual force will be at work and is currently still at work against the people of God. But we will endure. We see evidence in the early church that in the face of oppression and hatred and persecution, the people of God persevere. They persevere. The mountain was cast into the sea. The church took root and was established and grew, and the light of Christ still shines through the fellowship of his people in the local church. But what is this gospel? How did Christ accomplish imparting his presence upon his followers? How did he make us temples? How are we now his temple? The gospel is this. That God created everything in perfection. And that he commanded us. But we disobeyed. And each and every subsequent human being is fallen. Our nature is fallen. We are sinful. But God in his goodness and his his mercy, he knew that this would happen. And he planned for this. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, in the flesh to live the perfect life for us. Fully obedient to his father. Obedient to the point of death on a cross. And on that cross, he shed his blood. And his blood is what we call an atonement or a covering for our sin. 
And he forgives us our sins through his blood, through the perfect, better Passover lamb. The spotless, unblemished Jesus Christ laid down his life for those who will place their faith and trust in his finished work. And he didn't stay dead. That's the good news. But on the third day, he resurrected from the dead in glory. And he has ascended to heaven where he is ruling and reigning on his throne. And church, we have been entrusted with this message, this good news. I fear that our churches can at times resemble the temple of this era, keeping the world at bay, the least of these on the outside. But God has called us to something better and greater, to be a people about his kingdom. We are, as we've already said, we're kingdom-minded and are marked with his kingdom through a few specific ways that we're going to draw out from this passage. Kingdom-minded, we're kingdom, we have kingdom generosity, kingdom light, kingdom faith. We're kingdom-minded people who evidence their salvation. We bear fruit through this, through generous giving. If you'll recall back to Jesus' triumphal entry, they laid down what? Their cloak. They laid down their belongings for Jesus. If you recall the the men that they came to and and they borrowed the colt, they said it was for Jesus and, and they gladly lent their colt for the cause of the Messiah to come into Jerusalem. They were generous people. We are kingdom-minded people through being a light. Through being a light to all of mankind, to all of humanity. You see, the temple was to be a light to the nations. It was supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. Are we, church, a light to those pilgrims, those lost who are drawing near to the church, who are drawing near to the good news of Jesus Christ? Or are we just interested in surrounding ourselves with those whom we are comfortable with? Because Jesus told us this. He said, you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill, what? Cannot be hidden. And we are to be people of kingdom faith. We rid ourselves of self-righteousness. We rest in the finished work of Christ and his power. We trust in his goodness and grace, trusting in his great redemptive and restorative plan. This isn't the ending to the story right here. He promises to restore all things. He says he will make all things new. We don't trust in our good works. They are, as God's word says, they're filthy rags to our holy, righteous, and perfect heavenly father. But we rest in the righteousness of Jesus. And so I address those who are hurting in the room. For those of you who are hurting, you're living a broken and distant life. This is not the end of your story. If you are suffering from sickness and pain, this isn't the end of your story. If you are struggling with secret sin, this is not the end of your story. Hear this. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Place your faith in the goodness of God. We, follower of Christ in the room, Christian, we are his temple. 
His Holy Spirit has filled each and every blood-bought believer. We are transformed. We are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, new creations in Christ. That is your identity. It's not sex addict. It's not alcoholic. It's not womanizer. It's not whatever you've been called. It is a new creation in Jesus Christ. And as new creations, we are marked by faith, prayer, and forgiveness. We have, Christian, received the righteousness of Jesus. Paul says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, maybe you didn't understand that. Let me read that one more time. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. I'll read it one more time just so you can comprehend it and blow the roof off this place. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? Amen. We don't need the religious show. What we need is the kingdom fruit of generosity, light, and faith, not for our glory, but for his glory alone. And so we're challenged today and we're warned. We are challenged first to acknowledge Jesus as both Lord and Savior. He is our king. He is over us, directing us, guiding us, and caring for us. And we are warned We are warned of his judgment. Fruitless Christianity does not exist. It is a curse. Just like the fig tree that looks great on the outside, but bears no fruit. Or like the temple which promised hope and forgiveness, but was filled with depraved and greedy religious leaders. Church, we are set apart for something far greater than that to bear fruit, to be people of faith and prayer and forgiveness. May we go out in that light. I want to invite the band to come forward. Each and every week we receive the Lord's Supper here to remember the sacrifice of Christ. If you didn't pick up a cup on your way in, feel free to to walk over there and grab one of those. Uh, This is for those who are followers of Christ, who have called upon the name of Christ. And so if you don't identify as a Christian, we'd ask in this time to to abstain from receiving the Lord's Supper. But but let me get through this first. Each and every week, we we receive the Lord's Supper as as a remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for us. His sacrifice covered our sin, and and so we receive these these symbols of that sacrifice, the the bread and the juice. The bread represents the body of Christ, which was given for us, and the juice represents his blood, which which was shed for us, and it's an atoning blood, a covering blood. It covers our sin. And I want to read, as as you're remembering the work of Christ, I want to read to you from uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having, hear this, forgiven us all our trespasses. 
He says this in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, hear this, nailing it to the cross. And so as you receive the Lord's Supper this morning, remember that your debt, your sin has been nailed to the cross. Stop taking it back up again. Leave it there along with the guilt and shame. It's nailed to the cross. Jesus handled it. And so we remember that as we receive the Lord's Supper this morning. I want to invite then, I excluded a group earlier, but now I want to invite you. You have heard the good news of the gospel if you're skeptical of Jesus or you're just unsure about Christianity. You have heard the good news of the gospel. You have heard what Jesus has accomplished. He has, he's canceled the record of our debt and he has nailed that to the cross. And you can be assured of eternal salvation and purpose in your life if you will place your faith and trust in Jesus this morning. And if you have made that decision, we would invite you to take the Lord's Supper with us for the first time this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you've made that decision, uh, as the music plays this morning, we'll have elders in the front of the room. They would love to pray with you. Uh, also, if you are struggling through something and you need prayer, our elders will now be available in the front of the room. They would love to pray with you and to bear that burden with you. That's what the church is for. And so in just a few minutes, the band's going to play quietly. We will uh, receive the Lord's Supper. Uh, in that time, you can pray to yourself. You can repent of sin. Uh, you can seek ways to forgive those you're at odds with and eat and drink and remember your Savior. And then after that, we're going to sing a few songs together. I want to encourage you uh, that we stand and we sing boldly as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And then as we leave this morning, we'll have an opportunity to give back uh, to the mission and vision of North Bullet Christian Church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do love you and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your, the power of your word, Lord, that it is still so incredibly relevant to us. Lord, we pray for our hearts, for the follower of Christ who is receiving the Lord's Supper this morning, that we would examine ourselves, that we would repent of known sin, and that we would seek to reconcile broken relationships in our lives. We would seek to forgive others as your word commands that we would eat and drink and remember our Savior. Lord, we pray for those in the room who are skeptical of Christ. Lord, they have heard the gospel this morning. Those are words that have gone out, but you have the power. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill that person that is skeptical, that they would confess Christ as both Lord and Savior, and they would receive eternal life this morning. Lord, we pray for our hearts as we stand and we sing together, that we would sing as people redeemed by the blood of Christ, that we are emboldened and empowered to go out and be people of great prayer and faith and forgiveness. Lord, we pray for our hearts that you would give us hearts of generosity as we give back to the work of your kingdom through the local church. And we pray these things all through the power of the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, amen.